You've undoubtedly heard someone say, I have good news and bad news. Which do you want to hear first? Okay, so uh, we have a couple of pastor friends in the congregation this morning. Pastor Dave, Pastor Bill, Pastor Charles. So they can relate to what I'm going to share with you. Good news and bad news in the ministry. Okay, good news. You baptized seven people today in the river. Bad news. You lost two of them due to the swift current. Good news. The deacons voted to send you a get well card. Bad news. The vote passed seven to six. Good news. The session accepted your job description the way you wrote it. Bad news. They were so inspired by it, they formed a search committee to find someone capable of filling it. Good news. Mrs. Jones is wild about your sermons. Bad news. Mrs. Jones is also wild about the Kardashians. Good news. Church attendance rose dramatically the last three weeks. Bad news. You were on vacation. So today's message starts off bad. It really does. But it ends up really good. Okay, so I'm going to do the bad news first, then the good news. Our our text as we're working our way through Ephesians is Ephesians chapter two, verses one to ten. Let's read that. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that. In the coming ages, we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand That we should walk in them. This is one of the great passages of the New Testament. It really is. So let's start with the bad news first. Sins work. And the need for grace. Sins work the need for grace. Verses 1 to 3, if you have your Bible app open on your phone or the Bible in the pew in front of you. A, A lady told her new pastor who'd only been there a few weeks. She said after the sermon... I didn't understand sin before you came. So Paul says here, we are dead in trespasses and sins. Paul doesn't pull any punches here. The non-Christian is dead. The coroner's report is final. They're a corpse. Now, the unbeliever will say, I'm great. I've never felt more alive. Yeah, their body's fine. They have a fun personality. They're emotionally stable. They're a nice person. 
But the spirit, their spirit on the inside is dead. The part of them that relates to God is dead. Ephesians 2.17 But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. This is God's command to Adam. For in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Adam and Eve ate of the fruit that day. They didn't die physically, did they? They died spiritually that day when they sinned. The unbeliever is like the zombie. Ever watch a zombie movie like Night of the Living Dead? Hopefully you haven't. But the zombies slowly terrorize a town. They walk around very slowly after people. And I've always thought, why don't the people just run? Just run away. The zombies are so slow. But the teenagers in the movie run into the house and hide. And eventually the zombies get there, go in the house and get them. Never understood that. They're walking, right? But dead. They're the walking dead. They can't relate to God. These people are nice and they do nice things like the unbelievers at Malta. In Acts 28.2, the native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. Nice grandmas can be unsaved and on their way to hell. Now, this image works for me. Maybe it will for you. Picture your spirit, the real you on the inside of you, dead in sins and trespasses, lying at the bottom of your feet. That's the state of every unbeliever. They can't relate to God. From the skid row drug addict to the Wall Street banker. The only difference is the outer state of decay is more obvious in the one than the other. So what causes spiritual death? Paul says trespasses and sins. What do we do when we trespass? Right. We're we move from where we're supposed to be in the path we're supposed to be on. And we go off course and we go to a place where we're not supposed to be. We're out of bounds. We misstep. We're not consciously trying to do wrong. We're just not paying attention to where we're going. We get lost like sheep. We get off the right path. Now, the word sins means to miss the mark. It's actually an archery term where the arrow falls short of the target. And that's what happens when we sin. We fall short of the target of God's commands and God's standards. There was a fellow shooting arrows and a visitor came by and saw all these uh, bullseyes set up and every single one, the arrow was right in the very center of the target, the bullseye. So he asked him, how do you shoot so well? He says, I don't. I just shoot the arrow and then draw the bullseye around the arrow. And that's us. We fall short. We get off the path. We make excuses for our sin. We rationalize our sin away. We always project and present ourselves in the best light possible. Can you relate to this? Have you ever wandered off the right path? Have you ever fallen short in something in life? Of course, we all have. Paul says in Romans 3, 10 to 12, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Spiritual sin causes me to die spiritually. It separates me from God. I can't have a close relationship with God. And Paul mentions here three sources of sin and death. 
in verses two to three. First is the world. Now, he doesn't mean planet Earth world and he doesn't mean people world like in John three sixteen. He means the world system. He uses the phrase course of this world, the philosophy of the age, political correctness, wokeness. We see that in our culture, don't we? Romans 12 two, the Phillips translation says, don't let the world shape you into its mold. That's what the world system and values try to do, be it materialism or humanism or Marxism or atheism, all the isms, power, sex, climate change, you name it. Many worldly philosophies and religions lead people down the wrong path. James 4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The second cause of sin is the devil. Paul uses the term prince of the power of the air. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is a powerful, created, spiritual being who does evil. He usurped Adam's rightful reign over the world. And now he reigns temporarily, but he's not going to reign forever. He's not going to reign or rule in hell. When I was a senior in high school, I was working at Harrison Payne and, and there was a co-worker named Rick Murphy, not our own Rich Murphy. But Rick Murphy said to me as I was witnessing to him as I was a young Christian, he said, when I get to hell, I'm going to kick Satan off the throne and I'm going to sit there and drink beer and play cards with my friends. And I said, in a blast furnace. Satan is going to be the first one thrown into hell, the Bible says, into the lake of fire where he will be tormented forever, not ruling and reigning. John eight forty four says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He can only deceive and trick and lie to you into sinning. He tempts you and you say, OK, he gets into your head, into your thoughts He's the prince of the power of the air. Have you ever heard the phrase, there was excitement in the air? That's kind of the idea where it's the spirit of the age that grips everyone and controls and influences people for evil. And the third cause of sin and spiritual death is our sinful nature. Verse three, we, we all have a bent toward evil, cravings, lusts. Impulses which we can't turn off completely. And then we choose to sin. The Bible says we're also born in sin. Psalm 51 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The, the monks, the religious people of the Middle Ages, 
left the cities and towns because they wanted to get away from temptation. And so they, they went out into the desert and there's where they lived. But they, they write and we can you can read their writings where they say, you know what? Temptation found me out there in the desert. We all need food to live, but so we live to eat. We binge and purge and what's the result? We suffer. We need sexual fulfillment, but instead of marriage, we seek it outside of marriage. And as a result, we suffer. We need significance, but someone else gets the promotion that we were hoping for. And then we are bitter and angry. We suffer. This is the bad news. We're lost. We fall short. We're deceived. We're selfish sinners. And the result, we're children of wrath. Doomed to destruction, destined for hell. Ephesians 2.12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Without God, no hope. The worst kind of hopelessness is the state of the unbeliever. John 3, 6, 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he is not believed in the name of the only son of God condemned, deserving of God's wrath and justice. You will never understand God's mercy until you understand God's rightful wrath against sin. Now, is there any good news at all? Paul continues, yes, there's some really good news. God's work. The nature of grace. This is verses four through nine. You don't do CPR on a corpse. That corpse doesn't need, can't be resuscitated. It needs resurrected. So verse four contains two great words. I love these two great words. But God. Karl Barth called it the mighty adversative. God intervenes. God steps in. God takes the initiative because God is rich in mercy. He was willing to sacrificially give his son. The word mercy means pity. God looks on us in this hopeless, sinful state, and he feels sorrow and compassion for us. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just pity us. He acts in sending his son or we would be deservedly in hell for all eternity. But we're not because God is rich in mercy. And then he made us alive. Remember our dead spirit lying at our feet within us. It now stands up on the inside of us. He made us alive. You're a new person in Christ. Second Corinthians 517 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I don't turn over a new leaf. I have a new life. That new life is not only my spirit within rises up inside of me and is alive in Christ, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our youngest son has that verse, his favorite verse of the Bible, tattooed on his bicep, misspelled. 
And the tattoo artist, of course, didn't know how to spell Galatians either. So he misspelled it on the tattoo. Our spirit becomes alive and Christ, through the person of the Holy Spirit, lives in us. Not only are we a new person, we have new power. Remember last week? Resurrection power. Paul says here he raised us up with him. Ephesians 1, 19 to 20. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This new power is available to you, the believer. Tap into your heavenly bank account. So not only am I a new person in Christ with new power, I also am given a new perspective, a heavenly one. Paul says here, he seated us with him in the heavenly places, in that spiritual realm of confrontation, as it were. We're on the throne with him in heaven now, spiritually speaking. We're joint heirs of the blessings of Christ. We may not always feel like it. I know some days... I'm going through my day and I'm, I don't feel like I'm seated in heavenly places in Christ. I, I feel like, man, I'm, I'm such a bum. I'm really messing up today. I feel lousy. But that's not who I am. Who you are in Christ, if you, if you have your uh, fill in the blank on the back side, just a few verses in the Bible about who I am in Christ. The Holy Spirit will help you see who you really are in Christ. And so when you're feeling bad and down on yourself, get out verses like that and reread them and say, this is the truth about me. I've gone from the lowest depths to the highest heights. I've gone from Death Valley to Mount Whitney in California. We lived in California. And I thought it was interesting that the lowest place in the continental United States and the highest place in the continental United States are in California, not that far away from each other. Death Valley is 280 feet below sea level and Mount Whitney, 14,495 feet above sea level. And they're not that far apart. Low to the highs. We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Seated meaning rule and reigning and resting is what that idea conveys. We've exchanged our grave clothes for royal robes. We are citizens of heaven. Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So why did God do this? We see that in verse seven. To show the immeasurable riches of his grace. For all eternity, you and I are trophies of his grace. He's going to show the devil and all the demons, all the angels, all the world. Here is exhibit A of my great grace, my love and my mercy and my power and compassion. I show everyone, look what I've done with these people in the coming ages means a long time forever. It's beyond our comprehension. Heaven is going to be so tremendous and fantastic it certainly won't be boring. Now, verses eight and nine. These two verses are very quotable. If you, if you want to memorize something in Ephesians, you, you could do a lot worse than right here. These two great verses. We are not saved by our own efforts. It's important that you grasp that truth or, or you really don't understand the gospel. 
The definition of religion is what you do to save yourself. All world religions other than Christianity and all cults. The bottom line is you have to do things to save yourself by your own efforts. And and sadly, many try to do that today. And in fact, here's a quote. And it regards the views, religious views of many American teenagers. Researchers with the National Study of Youth and Religion at the University of North Carolina interviewed more than 3,000 teenagers about their religious beliefs and have released findings in a book. The social scientists concluded that American teenagers believe a God exists who created the world and watches over human life. God wants people to be nice to each other, as taught in the Bible in most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be involved in one's life except when needed to resolve a problem. Good people go to heaven when they die. Commenting on the research, Jean Edward Veth writes, even these secular researchers recognize that this creed is a far cry from Christianity. As this current creed of many young people in their beliefs have no place for sin, judgment, salvation, or even Christ. Instead, most teenagers believe in a combination of works righteousness, religion as psychological well-being, and a distant, non-interfering God. Or to use a technical term, moralistic Therapeutic deism. In religion, you have to do something to save yourself. In Christianity, you have to receive something. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Bono uh, of the rock group, Irish group, U2. I thought this was a pretty interesting quote. Maybe this guy is thinking about grace. He says it's mind blowing. It's a mind blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. Karma says what you put out comes back to you. Every action is met by an equal or opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe, he says. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet along comes this idea called grace to upend all that. As you sow, so shall you reap stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of bad stuff. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am. And I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. Let me tell you a parable. A made up story here, folks. A police arrested a man for rape and murder of a young girl. He was convicted and sentenced to die in the electric chair. So you go to the judge and offer to die in his place. But the judge refuses. But the judge says, but if your daughter 
wants to die in his place, I'll allow that since a young girl died because of him. You agonize over this, but agree. You take your daughter to prison. They shave her head. Then strap her in the electric chair, put electrodes on her head and her body. She's crying. She's looking at you saying, why are you you doing this, Daddy? They pull the switch. She dies in agony. The murderer is free to go. Sometime later, you see him in a restaurant. He doesn't see you come in and you're seated behind him. He doesn't know you're there. But you overhear his conversation. He says to his dinner party that he got out because... Overall, he's a really good guy. There were banks he never robbed. There were plenty of young girls he never raped and murdered. Now, how would you feel sitting there behind him hearing this talk with you knowing you gave your daughter for his life? You wonder if that's how God feels when we boast. When we say, I'm a really good person, I've never murdered anyone. We're all sinners who can't save themselves. It's like boasting someone paid you off your $10 million debt. You, you should have seen me take that check and hold it in my hand. It was a thing of beauty. No, you can't say that. Someone else paid off your debt. So let's say you have a face so ugly that children run and women faint. The children are yours and the women are your wife and mother. But a plastic surgeon sees you and he feels sorry for you and he has compassion on you and he asks if he could operate on you and you say, yeah. So after the surgery, are are you going to be proud? No, you, you were ugly, really ugly. It was all the surgeon's skill and compassion. All you did was say yes. God's work through us. Point three, the result of grace. Verse 10, we are God's workmanship. That's a beautiful Greek word, workmanship, poema. It's our word poem. Masterpiece. You're a real work of art. You're you're a piece of work, brother. You're God's work. And he's working on you. You're God's poem. He created you special. And God don't make junk. I forget who said that. Ever think of yourself as a masterpiece? Let me read this quote. An eighth... 18th century rabbi put it this way. A person should always carry two slips of paper, one in each pocket. On one, it should be written, the world was created for my sake. And on the other, it should say, I am but dust and ashes. On days when we feel discouraged and worthless, we should read the first one. On days when we're consumed with pride and our own self-importance, we should read the other. And in his book, Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis points out how knowing the eternal significance of every person we meet should change how we treat others. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to 
may one day be a creature which, if you saw him now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is two hours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. The world, Satan and our sin nature, corrupt and pervert God's creation. But God restores us. He's the potter, I'm the clay. He's molding and shaping you, even today, making you into his masterpiece for his glory. Now, I want to be very clear here. I do good works, but I'm not saved by doing good works. Got it? I'm saved for doing good works. It flows out of who I am. It's a way of saying, thank you, God. For all you've done for me, I I want to do that for you. Martin Luther writes, although I am an unworthy and condemned man, my God has given me in Christ all the riches of righteousness and salvation without any merit on my part at a pure, free mercy. So that from now on, I need nothing except faith, which believes that this is true. Why should I not therefore freely, joyfully And with all my heart, with an eager will, do all things which I know are pleasing and acceptable to such a father who has overwhelmed me with his inestimable riches. I will therefore give myself as a Christ to my neighbor, just as Christ offered himself to me. I will do nothing in this life except what I see as necessary, profitable and salutary to my neighbor since through faith I have an abundance of all good things. So, each day I could wake up and say, God, what have you prepared for me to do today? Let me close with this quote. Your worst days are never so bad that they're beyond the reach of God's grace and your best days are never so good that they're beyond the need for God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, as we think of this great passage in the book of Ephesians, which lays out the gospel so beautifully and clearly, I just want with everyone's head bowed and eyes closed in praying here that should there be someone, Lord, today here, at the hearing of my voice, or perhaps online listening or watching, that has never really made that personal commitment to Christ, trusted in Christ, put their faith in Him, His work on the cross alone for their salvation, and they're ready to make that commitment this morning. Anyone here at all, if you just raise your hand. Does anyone need to do that this morning? I'm a sinner. I need Christ. And I'm trusting in him alone for my salvation. Lord, thank you for what Jesus did for us on the cross. We can never pay it back. But we can say thank you by the good 
things that we do for others. Not earning our salvation, but as a result of it. In Jesus' name, amen.